Hey there, this is Mason Gordon, and you're listening to Soilcraft's Regenerative Agronomy Podcast, where we aspire to bring transparency to farmers through education. And now we'll head over to the studio where you'll meet the team and we'll introduce this episode's topic. Welcome to the fifth episode where today we're going to talk about nutrient efficiency. I'm joined by some of our team here. Denver Black. Trent Graybill. Ryan Grunewig. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about nutrient efficiency and four aspects we're going to cover today are these. Carbon, microbes, micronutrients, and distinct molecular forms of said nutrients. So let's start with the first one, and I'll ask Denver, in what ways does carbon affect nutrient efficiency? Boy, what ways does it not? So you might uh, be, be experiencing a reoccurring theme if you've been listening to our podcast in any kind of sequence, and for that matter, from here on out, right, carbon is just key. It's, it's everything, right? It's what distinguishes life from non-life. Even in our study of chemistry, we have inorganic chemistry, organic chemistry, you know, non-living, if you will, living. And the difference, the biggest difference is carbon. And so it's a pretty big deal. And when we consider it just about every time we do anything. So specifically when we're talking about nutrients, you know, we can break it down into probably first we can talk about complexing, right? Which many, many of us know about chelation, right? Which, you know, what I think in Greek to chelate, you know, the root means claw, means to grab, right? And to hold on to. And so we're not talking about a chelation necessarily. We're talking about a complex. And, and what's interesting about carbon or carbon-based molecules such as humic and fulvic acids as amino acids and is that often they're zwitterionic, which is a fancy term to say that they're, they have a positive charge and a negative charge. You can imagine it much like a magnet, you know, a plus and minus, you know, one on either side. And this allows them to, to do just that, to complex, to kind of be a buffer and a connector so that it, when we have a positively charged ion like calcium, you can have the negative aspect of that humic acid or, or amino acid that's carbon-based flip around so that the negative side of it kind of electrostatically kind of comes together, right? And we're not talking about ionic bonds. We're not talking about um, necessarily a sharing of electrons or anything, but we're talking about an attraction. And when these are attracted and come closer together, it makes, it makes that nutrient or element we're talking about less likely to either bind to something else that we don't want it to, or to be absorbed by, by plants or microbes. And so, you know, why that's important is we know when we put uh, something like on, uh, you know, nitrate in, in the soil, right? The soil has a negative charge and so, so does nitrate. And so it doesn't really want to stick around. So we can get a lot farther if we, we combine that with carbon. And so what we, what that means ultimately is better utilization by the plant, higher efficiency so that our spent dollars and our applied nutrients go farther. And again, as I, as I hinted on before, another aspect about carbon is really the aspect of of all living creatures needing carbon. We talked about that in a prior podcast, that if you look at the natural ratios and the nutrient requirements for a plant, by far and away, it's carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. When you see these forms in nature or food, for instance, even that we consume, right, it's going to be predominantly carbon, 
hydrogen and oxygen with just a little nitrogen or, or whatever other element we're talking about. It's, it's a smaller ratio and percentage and it's going to need to go in with carbon. And so if we supply not just the nutrient, not just nitrogen, not just potassium, phosphorus, whatever, but we, we put it complex with carbon. Now, not only does the plant, the microbe, whatever it is, have that ion that it needs, but it also has some carbon with it that it's going to need anyways. And oftentimes small carbon that it can really use. Can adding more carbon in, into the soil increase hydrogen and oxygen levels in the soil too? I mean, cause adding carbon can aerate the soil more make it more porous and increase those levels. Correct. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question slash point, right? Like that would probably go to differing forms because different forms of carbon, if you will have, will interact differently. For instance, humates will definitely as a carbon will, will have interactions, interactions with the soil colloid or the clay, clay portions of the soil, which, which increase flocculation. And you, you know, it's interesting you say interactions with hydrogen and oxygen, you know, yeah, absolutely. Because carbon will increase water holding capacity, um, which yeah, H2O and right nutrient holding capacity for that matter. And for that reason as well. So even applied carbon separate from putting it. So oftentimes we're talking about, you know, okay, well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like putting you know, microcarbon technology, you know, with UAN32 or something in the tank. So it complexes it before we put it into our soils. But it can also look like putting down pounds or gallons of humic acid onto the soil and then adding the nutrient. And when we have more free carbon in, the, in that environment, definitely it creates a space or, or a potential for holding. I think that's probably a good discussion around carbon, talking about the what kind of carbon. Because carbon could mean, you know, there's a lot of different forms of molecular sizes of carbon. And so if you look at amino acids being the building block of proteins, all your amino acids are lots of carbon chains. And then the same thing with, you know, humic acids being pretty large, complex carbon molecules. Most of your sugars, dextrose, sucre, you know, all the different types of sugar compounds, things in, also in molasses, is made up of carbon chains, carbon molecules. Fulvic acids are really small carbon molecules. What else? There's so many different, I think, different ways of carbon. And so when we talk about carbon complexing with nutrients to increase their use efficiency, I think it they're all important, but there are certain ones that make more sense at certain times in certain products. And so, like, for example, you know, if you want to increase a nutrient absorption or penetration into say a plant or a root or whatever it is, the host, human, animal, whatever it is, you want it to be a pretty small carbon molecule that's either, you know, the opposite charge of whatever the cell is that it needs to be absorbed into or neutral so that it's not necessarily being repelled to negatives. They're going to want to go the other direction. Carbon helps buffer that. But yeah, so a small carbon molecule, like a fulvic acid molecule, or, you know, there's things that we use that are, you know, basically fulvics that are digested by microorganisms that are even smaller than those molecules, but they're still carbon based. But from a nutrient use efficiency or say a holding capacity, you might want a larger carbon molecule like humic acids or something like something from say biochar that's a larger molecule 
and it's going to provide more of a holding capacity, whether it be moisture or keeping a nutrient somewhat kind of complexed or bound, so to speak, so it doesn't react with other nutrients and get tied up in certain soils. And so I think that's important to talk about when we talk about carbon, making things more efficient is there's different forms and they're for different purposes and they're all important, but the way we use them and where we use them can have a big impact on our results. And maybe another aspect to that, you know, we, I think we've been focusing predominantly on how it interacts uh, and helps the nutrient in the soil, but also we know that foliarly when we complex, uh, with complex nutrients with those small, like you said, the different types of carbon, those very small carbons like fulvic acid or even smaller like the MCT we use or or pairing it with an amino acid like soybean hydrolysate or or some molasses, right? The plant leaf, the phylosphere is more receptive to that. And we, we literally see improvements in nutrient uptake foliarly by measuring through sap when we use these mm-hmm. carbon technologies, right? So even, even something like foliars that are already more efficient are improved by the proper carbon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. So let's talk about microbes for a little bit. Trent, what ways does microbes affect nutrient efficiency? Well, in general, it seems like microbiology, bacteria, and fungi, both. And well, the term microbes, I typically think of bacteria and fungi, but there's other organisms as well. Ultimately, their job is to break things down, transport things, and produce microbial metabolites. And so all of those are extremely important because that's, you know, in a lot of ways, that's their job is to break down certain nutrients. I mean, there's, I'm no, by no means a microbiologist, but there's organisms that are specifically designed for, you know, obviously by the creator, but their job is to make phosphorus available or their job is to fix nitrogen, atmospheric nitrogen, um, or release calcium or, and, you know, they say one of the things that these organisms produce is what they call, uh, I can't think of the right term, whether it's a compound, but they're called ionophores or cytophores. And those compounds basically open up what they call active transport within a cell wall and allow nutrients to move in and out into cells and out of cells, which is incredible. And that's all modulated and produced by bacteria. And so the more bacteria that we have, the more available nutrients we're going to have to the plants. And a lot of times, ultimately, you look in nature, especially in, you know, more from more an organic carbon-based perspective, Plants like to absorb their nutrients in the form of microbial metabolites. They like them pre-digested and because they're absorbable, they're available. The plant doesn't have to expend a lot of energy to, so for example, if a plant uptakes nitrate, that's an elemental form, you know, of nitrogen, but ultimately nitrate is somewhat toxic in the cell of the plant or of an organism. So bacteria can take that and convert it into protein, but that takes specific nutrients. So you got to have certain enzymes which need cofactors like molybdenum. Molybdenum is directly related to the nitrate reductase enzyme that takes nitrate with bacteria, converts it into protein or amino acids, and boom, the plant absorbs it. And it's 
Anyway, so if we can take things like that, it's huge when it comes to nutrient use efficiency. But fungi are the same way. You know, we know, talk about mycorrhizae and all these different fungi that are amazing at extracting nutrients from the soil profile and pulling it from way over there and transporting it through their fungal hyphae to the orc, to the host or wherever it's attached, whatever it has its symbiotic relationship to. So microbes are key when it comes to nutrient use efficiency. And, you know, there's certain things that we use bacteria that are incredible at fixing nitrogen, atmospheric nitrogen and feeding it to the plant. It's kind of blank after a while, but there's so many things that these organisms do for nutrient use efficiency. Well, and yeah, I think, I think that's great. I think like you mentioned nitrogen fixers like rhizobium and azotobacter. What, what I think is, is tremendous about rhizobium particularly, which colonizes the roots of legumes is that it, it has a propensity to lower the pH in that rhizosphere, but also it, it excels at breaking that calcium phosphate bond. So, you know, again, as we talk about forms a little bit later, right, we, we have the ability when we talk about minerals that, that contain calcium and phosphorus being broken apart by a microbe. And now we have a two for one. We get calcium and we get phosphorus. And so but, but we have, there's even so many microbes uh, that are doing their job that, that are not directly related to any of these specific things. But since they don't have a stomach, for instance, since they excrete acids on the outside of their body, those acids alone, you know, carbonic acid and, and, and some of these other acids that they tend to mineralize whatever's even in just the region. So just in a general sense, the microbes are going to make that more available. And when we add phosphate into the system, you know, when we're talking about being more efficient, you know, all organisms, you know, have a phospholipid fatty acid bilayer. So little bug bodies, they, they need nitrogen to grow. They need phosphorus for their, for their bilayers. They need potassium as an electrolyte, just like we do. They need calcium for cell walls, uh, chitin to, to make chitin for fungal hyphae, like the biology, the microbes, they need all these things as well. And so the difference is when we feed the microbes and talking about back to nutrient efficiency, we're able to hold it in pseudo, you know, or in life, right? We're able to maintain that. So when you talk about nutrient holding capacity, carbon has the ability to hold it there chemically, physically, but microbes serve as a battery as well, right? Because they're going to be a living storage as they reproduce themselves. They're using the, the elements that we're applying that our crop needs. And then as uh, protozoa, for instance, feed on bacteria and fungi, those protozoa eat that they metabolize it and they poop it out just like a cow. And that's now available for the plants, but it's in that metabolite form you mentioned. It's in, it's in filled with enzymes. You know, one of the biggest advantages to water soluble fertilizers is that we can add it now and we see a response now. You know, that's the pro, if you will, of water soluble fertilizers. The, the con is that it's really hard to stockpile that because it's available now. So it's either gonna be toxic to the plant it's going to leach, it's going to volatilize, whatever. It's not going to want to, to be able to, we, we can't stockpile it well. And we try to stockpile. That's one of the biggest problems we see. Oh, well, let's, look, we don't want to make a dozen passes. Let's, so let's, let's make a, you know, a few big passes. Well, there's consequences for that. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about biologically active systems, where we are able to stockpile if we use the right form of nutrient when we apply it, 
and we have the biology to consume it and increase their population. And then if we have that all in balance, not just bacteria and fungi, but we have protozoa and nematodes, and microarthropods, they're eating each other. It's a dog eat dog world, mm -hmm. which the downstream effect is going to be all these complex plant soluble, like they say, right? What's the term? It's got to be available, but not soluble. Because if it's water soluble, as soon as we get water, we lose it. And we don't, we don't want to lose that. It, you know, we don't want to waste for one and we don't want to pollute groundwater and surface water either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Let's talk about micronutrients. And uh, Ryan, how do micronutrients affect our uh, fertilizer efficiency, mm -hmm. nutrient efficiency? Yeah, micronutrients are, I mean, they're, everything's a broad topic, I guess, when it, when it involves us three talking about it. But on a nutrient efficiency standpoint, using certain micronutrients can make things, you know, work better, more available. Uh, a couple of big examples is what, like what Trent said, the nitrate reductase enzyme with molybdenum or using uh, nickel to convert ammonium to usable plant protein. And it, it goes, you know, even deeper than just, you know, NPK, like uh, silica and boron to mo mobilize and make calcium more available, especially during key plant stages like uh, cell division or trying to get more into the fruit. Those are just, a, you know, some to name a, name a few, but my knowledge of micronutrients isn't as vast as everybody else's in this room, but it can make things, make things work a lot better and more efficient. And one scenario that does come to mind of using all three on a cornfield, mixing it with 32 urea ammonium nitrate, uh, we mix some molybdenum, a form of humic acid and molasses and with sugar and carbohydrates put it on the corn with the irrigation water and we increase microbial production. So more output from the microbes in the soil, added humic acid and carbon and a micronutrient to metabolize, break down and make that, you know, fertilizer more efficient for the crop and the soil. What was their result? Uh, so it was a dairy farm and they saw increase a yield bump and uh, less heat stress, more drought tolerance. And then the farmer was actually packing the silage on the silage pit and could tell more yellow kernels in the silage compared just in that field compared to everything else. And that was a mixed application once in, you know, early June. And I think the other one was late July. So two mixed applications, but yeah, put, put on twice. Yep. And that's really simple to do. And for the most part, pretty inexpensive mm -hmm. to add those types of things to your fertility program and not necessarily increase your cost but improve the output and the quality and the availability. On the topic of micronutrients, improving nutrient use efficiency, it's amazing. I mean, we could spend hours talking about this stuff, but just simple things come to mind, as, as we mentioned earlier, is the molybdenum being extremely important for, for nitrogen. Um, also, nickel, as you mentioned earlier, being the you know cofactor for the urease enzyme that helps convert that urea in the ammonium cycle. And then also cobalt is directly related to the leguminous, the, you know, the rhizobium in the root nodules. If there's no cobalt, then those organisms that create that fixed nitrogen from the atmosphere in those nodules can't do their job. They can't basically transport oxygen. And then, yeah, there's so many other things. I was trying to think of, of simple forms. You know, if you look at the molars chart, you could start to get an idea of how these nutrients impact each other. And, you know, silica is another huge one. Silica with calcium is major. 
you know, the more silica available silica we have, the more calcium absorption we get. Same thing with boron. We know boron is, you know, synergistic with calcium. It helps move calcium. Same boron also helps improve potassium use efficiency. And let's see, there was another one that I was going to mention. Like manganese with potassium as well, right? Yep. Just a synergistic effect, which I think it's interesting often because we know manganese is so critical. I mean, it's critical for hydrolysis, right, through photosynthesis. But it's also so important for, you know, what they, you always say they call it the seed of life, right? It's essential to create a viable seed. And so, you know, it, we're, we're often loading potassium, right, as a bulker, you know, as we're filling fruit, whether that's a kernel, you know, fruit of wheat, a kernel of wheat, or that's an apple or whatever it is. You know, oftentimes we're, we really, potassium is very critical at those later stages of fruiting and Turns out so is manganese, right? So I think it's interesting that those two are very synergistic. You see calcium and silica and boron, really big mm-hmm. early growth stages in life. Not to say that, I mean, they're all important throughout the entire growth phase of a plant, but I just think it's interesting to see that some of these synergies, they often are responsible for for the similar aspects. So yeah, that's good. So last point we want to cover, Denver uh, Different molecular forms of nutrients are really important in this conversation, especially when it comes to efficiency. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, thanks. So it's it's interesting that just, and we talk about different molecular forms, you know, a simple example would be nitrate versus ammonical nitrogen, to use it as an example. Or maybe we could talk about potassium nitrate versus versus potassium sulfate, right? So both of these are good examples. We see nitrate forms are generally going to be more vegetative and ammonical forms are more reproductive. The same is true with potassium. Uh, Potassium nitrate is going to be a better form if you need potassium early in the season when you, again, because that nitrate form is going to be vegetative, whereas potassium sulfate, sulfur tends to be more reproductive. And so, for instance, if if I need potassium and I'm later in in season in a crop, then I should probably be using potassium sulfate. If it's earlier in season, maybe I should look at uh, potassium nitrate as a form. Similarly, we can talk about uh, some forms that maybe you could call bad forms. I hate to call anything just outright bad because, you know, there's there's an instance for every nutrient. Uh, But in general, I think we could agree that there's detrimental effects from using certain products like, you know, I think poor muriate of potash kind of gets the bad rap. (laughs) It's kind of dogged on but you know, it's, it, it's, it's 50% potassium and 50% chloride. Now, potassium is a macro, macronutrient that, that, that the plants need a considerable amount of. Chloride is not. And so absolutely chloride is essential. And there are some instances where it, it calls for adding. But most often not, and certainly not in, in those type of volumes or pounds. And so there are instances where we should say, you know, should we be using should we be using uh, potassium chloride or should we, we be using a different form like like SOP, preferably an ash form if we're going to put that down. That's back to those earth minerals we talked about that are available but not soluble. Are we doing a foliar? If we're doing a foliar application, you know, look at the research on potassium applied foliarly, like potassium acetates through the roof more efficient. And then that gets back into the conversation we had earlier about all oh, being expensive. You know, look at the difference. Wow, come on, man. Potassium chloride is way, way cheaper. Is it cheaper? You know, when you get a, a GABA chloride and it's, it's holding out your phosphate, 
So you know, now you paid for phosphate and, and you have it there, but it's not in your plant because you, you got cheaper potassium with free chloride. No, it's, I would argue it's expensive. I would argue that the myriad of potash is the most expensive potassium you can apply because of the problems that comes with it, the downstream effects, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Put on potassium sulfate because sulfur at least is closer to a macronutrient, but then be careful with that. There are instances we're finding now where, you know, where we've been cropping for a long time. And so, you know, yeah, we, we know that sulfur can be good to stabilize nitrogen, you know, when we're applying nitrogen. But if, if you've done that for the last 15 years, there's a chance that you've accumulated sulfur and now it's affecting your nitrogen efficiency. So now that nutrient, so, okay, you know, maybe we, so then potassium acetate, whoa, now that's really expensive. Yeah, but not when we're applying it foliarly because our efficiency is so, so much more significantly great. Calcium, when we talk about calcium, you know, what forms of calcium? Like we talked earlier, calcium phosphate, calcium silicate. This is great. These are two for ones, you know, we're getting macros that we need. And oftentimes some of these, uh, you know, like soft rock phosphate, they have other elements in there too that in trace forms that that are beneficial to the crops for those trace elements mentioned. So anyways, that's just a couple of yeah, that's good. I, think, that. I think the nitrogen one is a big deal because so many times, ultimately, if we're stimulating and feeding carbon into our system and we have a robust microbial activity, we should not need very much nitrogen. And yet that's like, one of the main things that so many people use. And if we're going to use it, amino acid forms are incredible. They're so, I mean, that's one thing I think people don't realize is when you use carbon, depending on the form of carbon or the size of the carbon molecule, like amino acids, as well as, you know, folic type molecules, you can increase your nutrient use efficiency of these nutrients, sometimes anywhere from double all the way up to 16 times more efficient. And that's incredible. You know, if you can put something on, you know, oh, well, we used to use, you know, whatever it is, you know, this many gallons, you know, four gallons of nitrogen. And now we can use one quart of a nitrogen-based product and get the same response. That's incredible. And I think that's one thing that it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to believe. And so people tend to shy away and like not really even want to try it because it sounds crazy, but it's true. It's amazing. I think phosphorus is one of the best examples of that. You know, early on when we were using, you know, we've got a phos acid based product that's complexed with microcarbon and the use rates, you know, the price is higher. Once again, oh, expensive, man, can't afford that. Then you look at the recommended use rate and it's fractional. I mean, exponential in the reduced amount recommended. And I was the first to say this, this is too good to be true. Can't be. I'm not buying it. So, okay, great. What do you do? We'll put it in the field. And sure enough, you know, phosphorus, I think is one of the best examples because look, we even have university data conservatively saying our phosphorus efficiency is well below 30%. Some would argue below 15. That's a terrible efficiency rating. So if we're that low, if we can increase our phosphorus efficiency by 10 or 15 or 20 percent in in instances we're we're 50% better or 100% better and so we've been able to see exactly that one quart versus four gallons of what you're you're usually applying seems incredible but we continue to see it when we evaluate our results from mm-hmm. sap analysis and then we follow that out through yield we continue to see that yeah we can use less better product lower rate better results 
And we're not impacting the microbial community as much, I might add. Mm-hmm. If you're able, if we do want to put a starter in there to just get our crops going or whatever, if we're only putting out a quart of phosphate and it's being much higher in efficiency, we're going to be less likely to impact our mycorrhizal fungi and some of these natural phosphorolizers because we're not overwhelming them with unavailable phosphorus, right? So not to say that there may not be some instances where you can stockpile some of these mm-hmm. nutrients. But again, if you're stockpiling it, you're going to impact your microbial community and it's going to take time to make that soluble again. So, yeah, I know we probably don't have a whole much time left, but I think calcium is a really important one to touch on because with, you know, nutrient use efficiency with calcium, it's like, well, you can go get a cheap sugar beet lime and apply that, you know, at so many tons per acre or whatever you want. And it's like, okay. But what's that actually going to be available to the crop? How long is it going to take for that to break down? And, you know, same thing with calcium, you know, it's calcium carbonate, calcium sulfate, gypsums. Then you have your other forms like, you know, you're taking reacting calcium carbonates with acetic acid and having calcium acetates and calcium nitrates. And there's so many different forms. Calcium's not just calcium, but ultimately biological activity is the most important thing for almost every single element that is out there as far as nutrient use efficiency. So it just comes back to this living system and living living soil making these things available and efficient for the plants to use them. Sounds like we need to have a entire podcast yes. devoted to calcium. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. I think this conversation is essentially important even now as we're hearing about fertilizer prices all the time right now. So any other quick bullet points in relation to that, that how does this conversation directly affect our crop input decisions? I would say just a few simple bullet points. If you can incorporate amino acid-based products, things that have fulvic acid type molecules, very small carbon molecules, carbohydrate sources like sugar, and then if you can use micronutrients as well, but even those, those three things are so simple to apply into any fertility program for, for growers. And, you know, you could start right away by reducing your application rates by 25% easily. And then, you know, from there, you can experiment on your own and back down depending on your soil texture and your organic matter and your biological activity, et cetera, et cetera. But those are just some key, simple things that any grower can do in their systems to improve their efficiency and you know, reduce some of the, I guess, rates of inputs that they have. I might say one thing, I don't know that we covered specifically, but one thing we see time and time again when we use our oceanic fish hydrolysate is, I mean, you add even five or 10 gallons per acre of that, you know, in the fall or, or in the spring early ahead of your crop, and you'll see incredible nitrogen efficiency. And we, we know that because when we work with producers that are kind of at the rev limiter, you know, for applying nitrogen, they're putting on as much as they can without serious impact. And they start adding fish into the system. All of a sudden they, they spill over, they go, even if they keep their nitrogen at the same level and, and they just apply fish, all of a sudden we see, we see more mildews and more mites because no, we, we had, we, we were already too it. much. Yeah. <laughs> we're way too much. So you start by applying that and you reduce your nitrogen significantly, 20, 30%, mm-hmm. no problem. And 
and we don't see the the insect and diseases that that we were seeing. And so we've seen it time and time again. And not only are you going to be your, your crop going to be healthier, you're going to have higher efficiencies, but your microbial community is flourishing. Your, your your residue is going to break down better. And over time, we're going to see our soluble carbon go up in our soils and perhaps organic matter, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well, thanks guys for your inputs. I think with that, we'll conclude our fifth episode. Thank you for listening. It's been another successful podcast. If you have any questions or a topic that you'd like to hear us address, please email us at podcast at soilcraft.com. Until next time, thanks again for listening.